good to be with you on this first day of the new year. Happy New Year to all of you and God's richest blessings upon you in this coming year. Our text this morning is Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, those first three verses, I think a very familiar passage to most of us. A beloved passage, particularly verse 2, looking to Jesus. That's what we're to be about in this coming year. This is God's holy and infallible word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the word of the Lord. And just to say at this point, my comments will be based upon, of course, the Greek, but the English Standard Version. That's what I generally use when I'm preparing. So I will be saying, looking to Jesus. That's what that version says. That's not what we just read, but you're going to hear me say phrases that are from the English Standard, so you're not confused there. Well, dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this occasion affords us the opportunity for looking back and up while pressing on, looking to Jesus more and more in it all. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this year. Thank you for what has gone past and what lies before. Make us in it, Lord, always to look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Hebrews preacher and those to whom he spoke were no strangers to trial and suffering. Now, I say preacher, you may or may not be familiar with that, but many scholars think that the book of Hebrews is more or less, the whole book, a sermon. Maybe you've even heard it read that way. You can go on YouTube and see it read that way. It has something of the form of a sermon, so I'll sometimes refer to the writer whom we don't know. We're not going to get into that question right now, okay? But I will call him our preacher, and I mean the fellow who wrote this book. So I say that our preacher and those that he wrote to were not strangers to trials and suffering. Chapter 11, I think you may be familiar with chapter 11. It's often referred to as something like the Great Faith Hall of Fame. It's a chapter that gives many names of those in the Old Testament, that's what it's looking to, who trusted and looked to Christ alone, looked forward to Him. And so that chapter, chapter 11, spoke of faith triumphant, to be sure, but also faith tried. And here our preacher 
in evoking something of that chapter, you say, well, where does he do that? Well, he does that right in the beginning. He says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who's he talking about? Is he just imagining something we have no way of accessing? No. He's talking about the people in chapter 11. That's who he's talking about. That's the great cloud of witnesses, Abel and Enoch and Moses and Joshua and David and all the rest. You can go back and read that, not right now, but at some later time. And you can recall many others in the history of the church because the great cloud of witnesses isn't limited to those. It would then include those in the time of the writing of this. That is to say, Peter and Paul and John and Mary and Elizabeth, many others of the people of God. And then we could think about this through the history of the church. I just taught ancient church. I'm tempted to give you a look because we don't know enough about ancient church. The, the person in the pew needs to know a bit more about it and to be able to appreciate people like Augustine and Ambrose and Chrysostom and Basil the Great, but I won't keep going on about those. You know about people in the medieval times, uh, Anselm and Bernard or the, the reformers. We all know about Luther and, and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox or the Puritans or or those that came over to America who were your ancestors in the RCA, the CRC, and then down to your own times, down to your own times. Like Tad was speaking, Brother Tad was speaking of Mike and Victoria. These are part of the cloud of witnesses, those even living, and those of your own family and friends who have gone on. They, they witness to us. Linsky said, you can think of them in, in, a, in a measure as, as witnesses uh, of us, as like those in a stadium cheering us on. But that's not really the picture. It's not so much that those who have gone before particularly are witnesses uh, of us, but they're witnesses to us. They're witnesses to us of lives lived by faith. They lived and walked in faith. And that's what we're called to do. So what Brother Tad was saying is very, very helpful. Because on a day like this, on a day like New Year's Day, historically, the Christian church has taken the opportunity not just to think about where they are and where they're going, but to, to as I said, to look back, to look forward, all the while looking up, looking to Jesus. Our preacher here then tells us, considering all the saints that have gone before and even that still are with us in our times, the Lord urges all of you to press on, calling you to three things, to lay aside hindrances and run the race. Secondly, to look to and follow Jesus in faith. And finally, to learn endurance in all hardships. Lay aside hindrances Look to Jesus, learn endurance. That's what God would have us take and go out of here and live in this coming year. This is his blessed word for us today. So we begin by saying we're called to lay aside hindrances and run the race. Now the metaphor here that's employed in this exhortation to lay aside hindrances is an athletic one. Paul commonly used athletic references. You can think of 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, in which he likened the Christian faith to an athletic competition. And he uses several different pictures, boxing, running, 
And of course, he was talking to the Corinthians who knew the Corinthian games, and you may not remember that, but you all know the Olympics. They had it back then. It started, and now, what was it? I should have looked. I think it was 1896 is when the modern Olympics started going back to, you realize the Olympics didn't run all the time. That's why when they say modern Olympics, they mean, I think 1896 was the year. Somebody will check me on that. I should have checked. Very good. That man already is, is confirming me. So we're familiar with this. We're familiar with this. And here, the writer, the Hebrew preacher is talking about running a race. That's the picture, isn't it? We're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses who they've run the race. And what does it say? Let us lay aside every weight, the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Well, you can't run a race. The picture here, the idea here is you don't run a race with excess weight or baggage. Now, you might know if you're training for a race, and maybe you've seen people do this, if you're training for a race... You might carry extra baggage with you. You might, I've seen guys running carrying bags or having weights on their legs. Why would you want to do that? Because when you take them off in the actual race, it feels pretty good. It's kind of like hitting your head up against a wall, and when it stops, it really feels good, you know? And if you have all this weight you've been training with to take it off, to set it aside, and you know that's what you do in a race. You dress lightly. Now, the Greeks took this to an extreme, if you know anything about their practices. They dressed very lightly. (laughs) But you need to lay aside whatever hinders you and doesn't help you in the running of the race. I I needed to do this as a a young Christian. Um, I was about 19 in college, and I was so saturated with music that I couldn't go to prayer or read God's Word without just hearing in my head music. And you say, well, was there, oh, it was bad music. No, it was exquisitely good music. I had and have always had good musical taste. That isn't the issue. I was hearing Brahms. I was hearing Schubert. I was hearing Beethoven. I was hearing Mahler. And so for some months, I said, I'm just going to set this aside. You say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. No, there's nothing wrong with any of God's good gifts rightly used. But then there's something very wrong with God's good gifts when that becomes the controlling force of our lives. My dad used to tell the story about this. This goes back into the 1950s. He was a numismatist. That's just a coin collector. Don't get worried. And he said that he was so into it, uh, the, the offering plate. He knew he was too much into it when the offering plate went by in church, and he's thinking, I don't have that quarter! <laughs> I mean, you're not in church to take out coins, right, from the offering that you don't have for your collection. He sold his collection. Nothing wrong with being a coin collector, but there is if it becomes controlling. So, what you're being told to do here, friends, is to lay aside whatever hobby, employment, time taker, TV, sports, shopping, films, internet, music, that keeps you from your service to Christ. In these three ways, in your personal walk with Christ, you all ought to be in this coming year reading this in some measure. There are lots of plans. You can talk to an elder here, a deacon here. You can talk to people. If you don't have any idea, well, how could I read this? Maybe in a year. There are plenty of plans that will take you through the Bible in a year. 
or in your times of meditating on this word or coming before God in prayer? How about in our families? Have we gotten too busy that we can't open up the word together as a family and read it and pray? If we're too busy to do that, we're too busy. You do what you choose to do. That's the honest truth. You do what you choose to do. If you say, I'm too busy, you've chosen to do something else. And then in public worship, this isn't something that's optional. I'll go to church if, it's, if it fits. No. This is all the way God feeds us. It's like saying, you know, well, I'll go a week without eating. Nobody decides to do that if everything's right. Well, we need to feed spiritually on the Lord. So we need to lay aside things that would take us away from that and serve Him. Lay aside not only the weights that hold you back, but and especially, as the text puts it, sin, which clings so closely. Some things weigh us down that may not be wrong in themselves, but we may take a lot of time at texting or online shopping, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok. I'll stop there. You get the idea. But sin, that which is wrong, that which we ought not to do, entangles our feet. It entangles our feet and it brings us down. It causes us to stumble and fall. So there's that which weighs us down. That would be various sorts of distractions that I've been talking about. Taking even the good gifts of God and putting them in the place of service to God. Or engaging sin, misusing His good gifts wrongfully. And this doesn't mean so much besetting sin, I don't think. Of course, if some sin bedevils you, it would not exclude that. We need to put that apart. But it means more broadly when it says putting, putting uh, aside uh, the, the sin that clings so closely, I think it means more broadly sin, flesh, the old man to which we're to die. One writer said, sin is sticky. Once you get into the habit of sin, it's you think, oh, I'll just do this once. And it sticks to you. It becomes sticky. And it's hard to get rid of. So these witnesses that we spoke about in chapter 11, those great cloud of witnesses, they would speak to you of laying aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. You might say, well, wait a minute. Let's go to that list for a minute. What about somebody like Samson or or David? They failed in this. Yes, they did. Just think of David. He failed failed in this. He languished. He fell behind in the race. Maybe you've been doing so lately. But being persons of faith, Samson and David repented, and they knew God's gracious forgiveness by the blood of the Lamb. And let me encourage you to do that as well. In fact, I would say that this gives us a picture of repentance. Last time I preached here was in the evening, and I talked about John the Baptist. And you remember particularly what the role of John the Baptist was? He came and he called Israel, he called the people of God to repentance. That was his preaching because he was preparing the way for the coming of Messiah. We we were in Advent and we were thinking about the coming of Messiah. And we've just, I wasn't here with you last week, but I know you celebrated Christmas. You celebrated that wonderful coming that John was preparing the way for. Well, here, when we talk about laying aside things, when we talk about laying aside those those things which would weigh us down, we're talking about repentance. We're talking about repentance. And have you been giving way to such distractions, perhaps, or clear sin 
it's never too late to repent. You say, well, how do you know? You have breath, you have life, you can repent. And a new year is a good time to think about that. A good year is a new, a good time, a new, a new year is a good time to think about what should I put off and what should I put on? What should I stop doing and what should I be doing more? What should I be focused on so that all my time and treasure and talent is given to the Lord? That's what it means to run the race, to give your life to the Lord, because that's joy. You say, oh, that's a burden. No, your sin is the burden. Serving Christ is joy, true joy. You lay aside hindrances to run the race. And what is this race? It's the life that you're called to live in Christ. It's a life of faith, a life of joy, triumphs, trials, sufferings, even persecution. This is true for the people that Hebrews was written to. So you're called to run the race with endurance because he who begun it has begun a good work in you, Paul says, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now here's what I'm going to say that maybe you've been waiting for. What is the character of this race that's called the Christian life? The Christian life is portrayed under this metaphor of a race. I think you all know what I'm about to say. It's not a hundred meter dash. It's not a mile. What sort of race is it? It's a marathon. It's a marathon. And so you're, you may be sitting there thinking, Happy New Year. I come to church, and the guy tells me I'm in a marathon. I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm, I'm, I may be, you may be saying I'm sin sick. I'm, oh, I've got to put things off. I've got to put things on. I have to die to things. I have to live to righteousness. He tells me I'm in a marathon. If that makes you all faint in anticipation and feel weak, then you're just in the right place. Because the hymn is right when it says the only fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. You need to feel this. You need to know what you're called to, a life of faith in Christ, which means, first of all, then, that there has to be repentance for that which is opposed to that. Putting aside those weights, putting aside that sin, dying to that, and focusing on what God would have you focus on in your life. And if you feel like, that's just another burden you're adding. No, you, you're, you're confused about this whole burden thing. Because I told you a minute ago, your sin is the burden. Serving Christ truly always is refreshing. If you're not getting that, you're not getting what you're supposed to be doing. How is your weakness to be dealt with and your sense of need met when you hear this as a marathon? Point two of the sermon. Look to Jesus. So in point one, we've been saying lay aside everything, all the distractions, the time takers that keep you from serving God. Yourself, in your family, in your church. And now that was repentance. Now we're talking about faith looking to Jesus. Faith, the whole book of Hebrews sets forth, is resting and trusting in Christ alone. Habakkuk 2.4 has that great statement in the Old Testament, the just shall live by faith. And that gets taken up in three New Testament books. That theme of Habakkuk gets taken up in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, and in the book of Hebrews. And one prominent preacher of the last century, I think, helpfully said... There's a sense in which Romans focuses on the just. 
and Galatians shall live. And this book, Hebrews, by faith. Hebrews is particularly about that. It's particularly about Jesus. The book of Hebrews is particularly about Jesus. And what are you to do? You're to look to Him. And just as you're to put off the weights and to not get tangled with sin, looking to Him, that's repentance, that's faith. That's what faith is. Faith consists, we often speak of this, of three parts, right? Knowing who Jesus is biblically, believing that record, believing that He is the Son of God, that He is the one who came to save His people from their sins, believing that, but that last and you could say completing element of saving faith is trusting in Him. So it's not just knowing Jesus, about Jesus, and it's not just saying, yeah, I believe that, I believe the Christian faith, that third component. You say, what does that mean exactly? Well, we just try to use pictures. I mean, we're using metaphors here when we're saying, look to Jesus, and that third element is resting and trusting in Him. How could you think about it? Well, maybe you could think of a building being on fire and you're, you're pressed to the windows and all the fire escape, everything is cut off. All paths are cut off. And you look down and, oh, the fire company is there. And, uh, well, they have their ladder trucks, but you're on the 11th floor. They only go up to the 7th floor. What are you going to do? And you look down and you see the firemen have, have nets and they're motioning. And you realize in that moment, okay, my only way out of here is to jump into this net. Knowing the, the difficulty, knowing your peril, that's knowledge, you could say. Believing the only way to be saved is out of that window. That's, that's a scent. That's that second element of faith. But unless and until you jump, you get that. That's trusting. That's trusting. because You have to trust in order you say, how do I know you're going to catch me? Well, you know what? They may not catch you. It's actually, that's not a bad question. But Jesus doesn't miss. Jesus doesn't miss. You can jump into his arms. That's, we sing songs that express this leaning on the everlasting arms. What do you think that's about? It's about trust. It's about trust. Paul, in Philippians 3.8, looks away from everything, even his law-keeping, to be found in Christ Moses, in the previous chapter here, looked away from Egypt's present enticements and endured in that look, seeing him who is invisible. Faith is essentially looking away from all that you are, have, and do, and looking to none other than Christ. Have you been looking elsewhere? Have you been looking for your joy, your fulfillment to the world and its allurements? Look to Jesus Christ alone. And make sure you get this. We've been talking about this witness that the great cloud of witnesses, the saints who have gone before us and even may be alive in our own lives now, those who you know or who are faithful, the witness that they may be to us. Calvin got this really right when he said, we look at, he called the cloud of witnesses, the great throng. Calvin said, we look at the great throng. We look at the saints and the testimony they are to them, to us. We do not look to them. We look only to Jesus. Do you, do you get the difference here? You can look at faithful people in your life, but you don't look to them. There's only one you look to, and that's Jesus. He's your only Savior. 
your mother or your father or your grandparents may have been, a, may have been great persons of faith. I hope they were. I had some who were. But I don't look to them. They were mere sinners who needed saving like I do and like you do. I look to Jesus. And Jesus is said to be the founder and perfecter of the faith. The perfecter part is kind of easy. Of course, he himself perfectly served his father, right? He came below and he kept the whole law for us. We call that the act of obedience. And then what's in view here in our text, talking about enduring the cross, as he went to the cross and he paid the penalty that we owe God. He paid that penalty on our behalf. He paid that for us. We could say he was the man of faith par excellence. He was both the one whom we trust as the object of faith, first and foremost. He's that before he's example. But then he's an example, the supreme example. But how is he founder? Well, I think you can think of Hebrews 13, 8, saying Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you read a passage like Jude 5, which says Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. What? Jesus? Yes. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the rock that followed our fathers in the desert was Christ. So Christ is not only the perfecter of faith, he's the origin of faith. He's the author. He's the very resource of faith. He's the one who gives us the gift of faith. He's the author, the finisher, the beginning and end of faith, as F.F. Bruce says. So we look to him and we follow him in this faith. We follow him in his humiliation. We've talked about this in some previous sermons. While he was below in the incarnation, he was in a state of humiliation. He was in such a state both because he added humanity to deity and because he humbled himself and became obedient even to the death of the cross. As we see here, he endured the cross despising the shame. We now follow after him. This is our time of humiliation. We will not enter exaltation until our resurrection, until he comes again as the pastor spoke about. So we're in this time of humiliation, which involves being put upon, which involves being harassed and reviled. But note that even in his humiliation, Jesus had joy, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He endured and was able to endure the cross and everything that led there with all its shame and indignity because of the joy set before him. There was that joy set before him. The joy on the other side of his resurrection, of salvation accomplished and then applied by the Holy Spirit. This triumph, the anticipation of which brought joy, is realized in his session. And that's, that's set before us there. It says that, that looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's called the session. He takes his seat. And what does he do there? We know he's finished his priestly work. Remember the priest, Hebrews makes it very clear that the priests in the tabernacle never sat down because they kept working. Jesus has sat down. His work of offering a once for all sacrifice is done, but his work isn't done altogether. You saw this when I preached on Romans 8. What's his work right now as our great high priest? He lives to make intercession for us. So as I tell you to look to Jesus, remember he's praying for you the whole time. And you may remember I said when I preached on that, 
we often forget to pray for each other sometimes. We say, I'll pray for you, and, and we do. And God's, many of God's saints have been praying for my wife and myself, particularly in her health condition, and we so appreciate it. But we know Jesus is always making intercession. He's always praying for us at the right hand. What's the takeaway for you now and the rest of your days? And those of this congregation, the Lord calls you to lay aside hindrances, to run the race, to look to Jesus, and finally to endure, to learn endurance in all hardships. Lay aside hindrances, look to Jesus, learn endurance. This perseverance, as the passage that we read, the translation we read said, I remember one of my professors at seminary being asked, what's the secret of the Christian life? And he said, perseverance. Continuing to look to Jesus. Hanging in there. He hangs in there with you. That ought to mean a lot to you. Do you know whenever you come to him, when we think about repentance, sometimes we've, we feel like we've done our worst. We've done it again. Oh my goodness, how could I have said this thing to this person dear to me? How could I have thought this thing about this person? How could I have acted in this way? And you need to know Jesus is always more ready for you to come to him and to repent and to believe than you ever are to come. He's not standing there doing this. You blew it again, didn't you? He's saying, come unto me. Come unto me. And find rest. Take my yoke upon you. It's easy. My burden is light. You have a heavy sin burden. Come to me. And you may feel like, why should you put up with me? Why should you continue to love me? That's a good question. That's why one of the 20th century theologians had an interesting kind of definition of justification. God finds us acceptable in Christ, even though we're really not very acceptable. I mean, if you think, well, I don't know about you, I'm great. Well, hmm. ask a few people around you. We tend to think other people are the problem, and that's a big problem right there. We need to realize what a problem we are. Like, like Chesterton, when the question was put, you know, what's the great problem in the world? By the Times of London, and he won the contest by a very short essay. He said, I am. I'm the problem with the world. If you see that, you're in a good place because Jesus always receives sinners. So learn endurance in all hardships. Jesus did, right? Think of his life. Hughes said, Christ experienced an utter loneliness in his earthly course. Nobody could really understand him. You might feel like nobody understands you, but nobody really did understand him. You understand that, I assume. No person on earth did. How could they? To know what it's like to be holy and harmless and undefiled, separate from sinners and yet living among them and even taking our sin upon him. He came out of the ivory palaces scented with cassia and aloes into a world of woe where he was not only not honored, but he was reviled. His beard was plucked out. He was spat upon. He emptied himself of heavenly glory. We're not the king of glory who deserve praise. We're sinners. But he got nothing but condemnation from us when he came. And he took it. 
He took it and did not revile in return, but he went to the cruel tree, and there he prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who does that? You say, well, did that impress anybody? Well, the thief who believed heard that and other things. Do you not think this was a part of his trusting in Christ, of believing in Christ? The believing thief, or as I said in a sermon when I preached on it once, the thief who knew enough heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he was amazed. Now, he could have called 12 legions of angels, but instead he died alone. Why? Because he loved us. He endured in this way, and we need to learn not to grow weary or faint-hearted in all our trials, in all the opposition that comes our way in the new year, in the coming year, from the devil, the flesh, and the world. Think of everything that's come against you in your life, of all your sufferings, trials, your struggle against your sin. Draw near to Him. How do we do this? How do we look to Him especially? Through the means of grace. You know that. And you say, well, that's what you guys always say. That's because it's the way. It's through the Word. It's preaching especially. It's reading, meditating upon it. The sacraments. I'm a Presbyterian, so we say prayer. Prayer. We come before God. We abide with Him. This is how we know and are enabled to endure. It's grace that's brought you safe thus far, and that will lead you home. John Milton, perhaps the greatest poet in the English language. It's interesting when you think about this. The greatest poet in the English language, arguably, went blind and hadn't even written his greatest poems. Interestingly, too, some you could argue the greatest composer was deaf when he wrote arguably his greatest piece of music. We can endure. We can endure. And Milton wrote this, when I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide lodged with me useless, though my maker, although my soul more bent to serve therewith my maker, and present my true account, lest he returning chide, doth God exact day labor light denied, I fondly ask, but patience, to prevent that murmur, soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts, who best bear his mild yoke. They serve him best. His state is kingly. Thousands at his bidding speed in post or land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. You need to learn this year. When we say learn endurance, you need to learn to wait upon the Lord. What does that mean? What do you think it means? To stand there with expectancy, to look to Him, to not come and say, okay, Lord, I'm having this problem, solve it. Okay, you didn't solve it. Well, I'll get you later. Now, wait on the Lord. Submit yourself to Him. You come and you say, I don't, I'm not even, I don't, I can't pray. I've talked to a lot of people when I counsel, they say, I can't pray. I said, well, pray to pray. Well, I don't think I can do that. I can't pray to pray. And I said, pray to pray to pray. And they're starting to get the idea that I'm not going to stop. You start right where you are and say, God, help me. Give me prayer. 
Help me to call on you. Help me to wait on you. Faith, that which enables waiting and endurance, is not some cold impersonal property by which we're taken home. The heart of faith is trusting in Christ, here and hereafter. It's by this personal, ever-renewed act that we know blessing, endurance, God's gracious keeping of us now in this new year and into eternity. His church, in fact, knows this providential care until He returns. When faith becomes sight, when hope is realized, and when love, the greatest of all, fills our horizon as never before when we see our Savior face to face, until then, lay aside every hindrance and run the race, looking to and following Jesus in faith and learning endurance in all life's challenges. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, there's so much here, but we, we pray you would help us, Lord, to lay aside hindrances, to look to Jesus. And in that repentance and faith, to learn endurance in this coming year, to even wait upon you, to come before your word, to come before you in prayer, and to not just rush away or if we don't get what we want right away, go away mad. But learn to submit ourselves to you, to wait upon you, to know that Father knows best. And to look to you always in Jesus' name. Amen.